All right. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit eternal life? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Well, when I, as a parent, send one kid to tell another, dad says, whatever, I expect there to be a response. I expect there to be a right response, an obedient response, right? Parents, you know what this is like. You send one kid, hey, dad says, or hey, mom says, do this, don't do that. You expect a right response. But even if that message is delivered appropriately, dad says often can be too easily avoided. It's often too easy for kids to make excuses, right? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly clear, you know, when brother said whatever. It wasn't totally clear what they were saying. Or, well, I wasn't so sure that it was really from you. But if I'm standing in the room using dad voice, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, come on, like... You either use dad voice or your dad used dad voice, right? Or even if I'm not standing in the room, even if I'm uh, in the other room using dad voice, it's different. Dad voice is clear. Dad voice is unrelenting. Dad voice demands action. If an angel came to you tonight, if an angel came to you tonight and spoke to you, how would you treat it? Would it be dad says or would it be dad voice? You see, Hebrews understands angels to be God's special messengers 
uh, of the Old Testament, God's word to his people. We can see that if you looked in Acts 7.38 or Acts 7.53, they understood that even um, the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his own finger, that the angels had actually delivered the law to Moses to then communicate it to the people. Angels were a big deal. But the Son had come, we're told, in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. The Son had come and spoke directly. And these Jews that this letter is written to had become Christians. Now, as we said last week, there was a growing persecution of Christians at this time under Nero, the Roman emperor, and from Judaism. Now, but the difference is Judaism was recognized under the Roman Empire, whereas Christianity was not. The old ways, the old Jewish system, the old external uh, religious um, uh, rituals, they were approved, okayed. But Christians were not by the Roman government. And so there would be a great temptation, not only to deny Christ, though that that would be a great temptation for these Christians, but there would be a great temptation to compromise. And wherever there is a temptation to compromise, what we find is our brains often start to try to work out how to justify that compromise. Could we not just keep Jesus and outwardly do some of this Jewish stuff? So then we're kind of recognized by the Roman government so that we kind of get the, the Jewish people off of our back and the Roman government off of our back a little bit. And can we do that and also keep Jesus as well? Would that not give us a little more traction in the public sphere? A little more credibility, a little more voice there? A little less persecution, a little less criticism? Would it not give us an opportunity even maybe to share about Jesus with our fellow Jews or with Roman officials? But if Jesus was another, so the thought might be, the the temptation might be, if Jesus was just another messenger, if he was just another messenger, a, a great messenger of the dad says variety, if you will, an angel, perhaps even the greatest messenger, you know, dads, that when you, or moms, frankly, parents, you know that when you really want a message to be delivered, there is one kid that you give that message to, right? Like one rises above the rest for reliability. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to point them out right now, but it, I'm, it's probably true. Well, could Jesus not just be the greatest of the messengers? And in that way, We could kind of have Christ, but also go back to some of these things. I mean, those Jewish rituals, the law, all those things, angels, we know that angels delivered those. Are they really that bad? 
You see, we are not tempted today to go back to Judaism. I, I don't think any of us in this room are tempted to go back to Judaism. That's not a, a tension that we feel, but we feel maybe perhaps a similar tension. Are we not tempted to say, well, did dad really say? Is it, it, was it really that clear? Is it really that urgent on so many things? So many things in which God's word speaks, but our society, our culture, our world tells a different story. So many things where God's word says one thing, but our culture says, well, but really, here's our wisdom. And we go, ah, but if I do what God's word says, then I'm not doing what the world says, and then they may criticize me. And so, I mean, can I not hold on to the gospel? Can I not say, yes, only Jesus can save your souls, but also say, but in this life, you know, you could kind of do these things. It's sort of okay. It's, It's an option. Are we not tempted to do that when the pressure comes in life? But if, as Hebrews opened, if Jesus is the very imprint of God through which God has now spoken, then he is dad voice right here on earth. Every word out of his mouth, every word that is in the word of God, if the word became flesh, then all of it, every bit, is dad voice, and it is unrelenting. It demands obedience, and it demands obedience right now. And so our passage this morning, this first big section of Hebrews, it's an example of the overall thrust of Hebrews. It's a a great example. It'll give you an idea of where the whole book is going, and you're going to see this pattern over and over again. And, And the pattern is this. First, it says Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is bigger than you understand. And then it says, that's why you dare not neglect his salvation. That's why you dare not neglect. Do not neglect it. Do not neglect it. And so today we're going to lay out the argument in this way. First, first we're going to talk about the reality that we have a superior messenger in Jesus. We have a superior messenger in Jesus. And this argument is going to be bracketed by two rhetorical questions, and you can see them there in verse 5 and in verse 14. And in the middle of those two rhetorical questions, uh, if, you're, if you're looking at your Bible there, you'll probably see that there are a bunch of quotations, a bunch of indented quotations. And basically what the author of this letter is doing is he is machine gunning Old Testament passages at his readers. It's not so much that he's building an argument, it's that he's putting shots on target over and over and over again, if you will. He's driving his point deeper and deeper and deeper. And then he gets to this point, uh, this, this sort of summary in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where he says, therefore, therefore, therefore what? And what we're going to see is we must not neglect a superior message. We have a superior messenger, and we must not neglect his superior message. So, as we consider the fact that we have a superior messenger, we need to ask ourselves two questions. In what ways is Jesus superior? And then we need to consider why that matters. In what ways is Jesus superior? Well, I think 
It highlights at least three ways that Jesus is superior here through these quotations. First, he highlights the fact that Jesus has a superior status. The question in verse 5 is this, to which of the angels did, did God call son? Now, you need to understand that angels, actually in the Old Testament, in the Psalms particularly, are called sons of God. We see that in uh, passages in Deuteronomy. We see that repeatedly in the, um, in the, the book of the Psalms. But they're called sons of God with a little s, if you will. They are not the son. The son was understood to be the Messiah. And two verses are given here to establish this point. Psalm 2-7 is quoted, and then 2 Samuel 7-14 is quoted. And, and I would encourage you, uh, if, if you haven't already, um, this week, go back and read those passages. Read the surrounding context of those passages. It'll give you a great idea. We don't have time to, you don't want to sit here for, you know, forever. Was I, you know, give you the full context. So I'll just leave that to you guys to uh, do that, and I'll summarize it. So second, uh, the second psalm concerns the powers of the world coming against the anointed one, God's anointed one, but being powerless to stop the son's enthronement. You can understand that what it's saying is there is a son, and he's the anointed one. He is the one who is to inherit the throne, and the worldly powers come against him, and there's nothing that they can do to stop him from getting on that throne. And of course, Jesus Christ fulfills that. The world comes against him. They crucify him whatever they can do to keep him from becoming king. And yet his crucifixion is just a step in God's process of exalting him to the throne. They can't stop it. The son of the most high will inherit all things and he will rule all things. Jesus, Jesus is uh, being here. He's, he's being begotten, right? It says, today I have begotten you. Begotten here seems to refer to Jesus' exaltation or his enthronement. Not, not that it denies that Jesus is eternally begotten, because it already told us back in verse 2 that he was appointed from the beginning of the world to inherit all things. But the point here seems to be that that happened, that was appointed to happen at a particular point in history, and that he was revealed at that point in history through those things, through his Death, resurrection, his ascension, through the coming of the Spirit, he was revealed as the Son. And he came then into full exercise of the powers that were always his. And that point is reiterated by 2 Samuel 7.14. If you don't know, 2 Samuel 7.14 is this uh, passage where God makes a covenant with David. David wants to build a house for God. And God says, no, 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 you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. But the way the Hebrew word works, the word house can also mean dynasty. It's like, his, I'm going to make for you this divine, this kingly lineage. And one of your offspring, he says, will sit on the throne forever. And God promises it. And so Hebrews is saying that is fulfilled, not in Solomon or in any other son, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
The angels brought messages about the Son. The angels come into the throne room and they sit around his throne, but the, only the Son sits on the throne and he will sit there forever. So Jesus has a superior status, but Jesus also has a superior rank. See, the ideas of verse 5 carry over into verse 6, and it says that Jesus is the firstborn, which, which is a, a title that's often given to Christ to show his superiority. He's the firstborn in all creation. He's the firstborn uh, uh, to, uh, uh, over the church, and he's the firstborn in the resurrection. But here, it reveals his superiority to the angels by showing Two ways that the angels are subordinate to the Son. Now, the first quote here is a rough quote of Psalm 97.7, or possibly also Deuteronomy 32.43 are in mind. And it tells us that the angels worship the Son. And so the difference here is more than just Jesus being higher up on the org chart. It's not like the angels are employees in Jesus' middle management over here, you know? The second, the second passage, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire comes from Psalm 104, 4, that the angels serve him, that they follow his every command, that, 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 um, that they go out with messages to uh, God's people or they go out to protect God's people. Where angels are seen by humans in Scripture, wherever angels are seen by humans in Scripture, humans fall down. It is as if it is a reflex action that they cannot control. That is how magnificent and powerful God's angels are when they manifest themselves before humans. And yet, what we see here is that in, in the presence of the Son, they must obey His every command. So not only do we have Jesus' superior status or in a superior rank, but, but it continues on to tell us that he has a superior existence even, or a superior being. You see, it's not done. It continues to just drive the point home, almost, almost as if the, uh, the preacher of the Hebrews doesn't even take a breath. He just keeps delivering passages after passage, and, and here he quotes Psalm 45, 6, and 7, and he quotes Psalm 102, 25 through 27, and he's driving this deeper that, it, that it's not only that, that, it's, that the Son rules, but it's even so much more than that. First, first, it clearly states that the Son is God. Look at this. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The, the writer of Hebrews attributes this to Jesus. Jesus is God. He's not just an angel. He's not just a superior angel. He is God. It's a clear statement that Christ is divine, but there's even more. There's even more because you could argue, someone could argue that, well, yeah, Jesus, um, when all this happened, Jesus got his godhood. Maybe he wasn't God at some point, but now he is God and he will be God for forever. But uh, the writer of the Hebrews, he kind of foresees that, I think, and he continues on into verse 10 and he says, No, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. The Son is the creator of all things, including angels. He's not just better than angels, he made them. And he can roll up the earth. And he can roll up the heavens. 
like you roll up a shirt. He is unchanging, even in a world that's constantly changing. He is unchanging, even as he can change everything. He is not merely bigger or greater angel. He is God. He is God in the flesh, the Word incarnate, the very glorious radiance of God himself, the exact imprint of God's nature in the flesh. And he has spoken to us. Why does it matter? Well, you think, well, Cody, I just, I mean, of course it matters. Jesus is Jesus and all of that. Like, of course it matters. But why, do, why does the writer to the Hebrews right here say it matters? What is it, what is, why does it matter to the argument that he is making? He wants them to understand that the stakes associated with the reality of Jesus' vast superior, superiority to angels are as high as they could be. In verse 13, it becomes the climactic uh, a quote, the climactic point, if you will, to this whole uh, set of quotations, and it gives another rhetorical question, and it cites Psalm 110.1 when it does that. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And this is sort of a compliment to Psalm 2. The two Psalms kind of work together, and the idea of sitting at a right hand is like the promotion of a prince who was once heir to co-reigning with the king. The one who sits at the right hand reigns with the king simultaneously. He is, uh, uh, his word is binding just as the king's word is binding. He is king for all intents and purposes. Jesus will sit there, it says, until when? Until his enemies are a footstool for his feet. No one will dethrone him. No one can dethrone him. He will never come off of his seat. He is reigning. And anyone who persists in rebellion, it says, will be tread under his feet. That's Jesus. Is he the Jesus that died on the cross for sinners? Yes. Is he the Jesus that's merciful and kind and long-suffering? Yes, absolutely, 100%. And he's the Jesus who will submit everyone who's in rebellion to him under his feet, and he will condemn them to hell for eternity if they will not turn to him in his mercy. And you need to know that. It gives us two options. Either you will submit to him, either you will admit that he is on the throne, and you will inherit salvation, and he will send his angels to help you, or he will put you under his feet. That is the two options, and there is no middle ground. That's why it matters so much that we get that this Jesus is not just a bigger angel. He's not just a better angel. He is God himself. You see, the reason it matters is that while Jesus is a messenger, Jesus is more than just a messenger. Jesus is master. Jesus is master. 
We cannot accept Jesus' message, but then deny him as Lord and King. Jesus is not on par with angels or the best of angels. He's of a totally different kind than angels. When Jesus came into the world in the flesh, God stepped into the room, if you will, and used his dad voice. When God's word is preached today, it's not a suggestion, it's dad voice. And it is unrelenting. It demands immediate, total trust, immediate and total obedience. Listen, if you're a father, then you know that there are times when your children's well-being, their very lives, depend on dad voice, right? Listen, you fathers, I bet you could all tell a time when your kids' well-being, when their life maybe, depended on them obeying dad voice, on their immediate obedience. When they're about ready to run into the street and the car's coming, when they're about ready to jump into the deep end of the pool, when they're about ready to stick that fork in the light socket, right? Dad voice comes into action. Dad voice must be obeyed. You know something that they do not know, and you need them to obey, and you don't have time to explain to them, you know, Newton's laws of motion or how electricity works. There's no time for that. They can't get that. They just need to know, you're dad, you're powerful, and I must obey dad. Listen, this is what Jesus is saying. You can't get it all. He knows things you don't know, that you'll never know. But what you do know is he's God. He's more vast than you could ever imagine. He has done more for you than you could ever even ask or think. And when he speaks, you must obey because he does not want something bad for you. He only wants good things for you. He wants to give you life. Listen, you can't, as dads, we know that if you constantly use dad voice, then, then it won't work, right? Because if you use dad voice every time, then there's no dad voice. It's just voice. And so you're selective. Because we're not infinite. But listen, God is infinite. God is eternal. And every time he speaks, his voice is dad voice. Infinitely so. Because if you have a voice that can speak words and bring something out of nothing... If you have a voice that says words and the whole world is created, then every time you open your mouth, that is dad voice. Listen, no kid, no kid wakes up thinking, you know, today I'm going to disobey my parents so that I can take a visit to the emergency room. Boy, I'd love to put my life at risk today. I think I'll do that. I don't think any kid does that. And yet they do put their life at risk, right? Listen, through, con- through consistent disobedience, disobedience in smaller things, kids, I'll just speak to you real quick, kids. If you consistently disobey your parents and you think, oh, it's just a small thing. It's just a small thing here. It's a small thing here. Listen, small things become big things. There's a reason that God said, honor your parents. Honor your father and your mother, and it comes with the promise that you'll live long in the land, right? Because it turns out your parents actually know things you don't know. But that, that command, that 
that command is not just about your parents. It is foremost in its essence about God. It is a command to all of us to obey our Father because He knows things that you don't know. And if we consistently disobey and we think, oh, it's just small things, small things become bigger things, bigger things become even greater things, and pretty soon we're running out in the street. Pretty soon we're jumping into the deep end when we can't swim. And I know because I did that twice as a kid. Okay? It's by the grace of God that I'm standing here. And so Hebrews gives us this warning. It's essentially, it's the same warning we're going to see through the whole book. We must not neglect this, this superior message. And, and how, do we, how do we do that? Well, we, first we need to have discipline to not drift. My kids uh, sometimes, okay, my kids, are, my kids are great. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. But sometimes they make a mess. Sometimes they're doing something neglectfully, let's say, and they spill something. And usually when that happens, I will respond something with, uh, uh, in some way like, be careful. Be careful not to spill that. And then, and then do you know what their response is? I mean, parents use probably the same thing your kids say. Uh, I wasn't trying to spill it, Dad. And, and then my response back is, You're not, you don't get what I'm saying. I know you weren't trying to spill it, but what I'm telling you to do is to try not to spill it. That's what I'm telling you to do, right? Like there's a difference between intentionally trying to spill something and intentionally trying not to spill that thing, right? And I don't want you to sit in this like middle ground where you're not intentionally trying to spill it, but you're also not being careful enough. And so you end up spilling it. This is the same thing we do in our faith. This is the same thing we do as Christians. Well, I'm not trying to deny Jesus. I don't want to deny Jesus. Yeah, but, but what are you doing to actually pursue that Jesus? Are you being neglectful of so great a salvation? They would, they would say, the Hebrews, well, we're not, we're not trying to reject Jesus. We're just thinking of maybe a little bit of these Jewish sacrifices and rituals alongside Jesus, you know, just to get the pressure off just a little bit. I mean, besides, how bad can they really be? And the author is saying, don't be fooled. If you don't anchor your ship firmly to Christ alone, then you will turn around one day and you will realize that you floated away. We say to ourselves, I want to be a Christian. But, but I don't have to, you don't have to do all, all that. I know lots of Christians that don't do all of that. You don't have to apply all of God's word to all of life. I know lots of Christians who don't, just so long as you avoid the really sinful stuff, right? Well, to the illustration in the text, as soon as you stop rowing toward Christ, the current of the water pushes you past safe harbor. You see, someone who deconstructs their faith doesn't wake up one day and say, well, I think today I'll reject Christ. Their boat was never actually anchored to him. It was just floating nearby. It looked anchored because the current of the seas around them hadn't pushed their boat away yet. But it was not anchored. 
And you might worry, well, how can I know if the boat of my faith, you know, is going to drift away in the next storm? What, what if the storm is too much? Well, listen, Jesus is able to tie us down, and he keeps everything tied down. Everything that he ties down, he keeps from drifting. The point here in the passage is not to focus on the seas, which we can't control, which we don't know. The point is to focus on Him. Consistent, if you consistently look to Christ, then you can't drift away. He'll keep you. Hear His message. Trust Him. But this trusting is active. In Romans 1, it calls it the obedience of faith. If you are not trusting God with all of these things in your life that are coming up, then how can we say we're trusting Him for the salvation of our souls? Which is so much greater. And it is not as if He's left us with no rope. In verses 3b and 4, it tells us, First of all, that the Lord himself declared it. And then he, he attested it. He confirmed it to them by, by those who heard it directly. And they didn't see, see the, these Hebrews, uh, the, the writer, the audience of this letter to the Hebrews didn't see Jesus themselves, but they had the firsthand account given to them. Not only that, but it's, they know it's a reliable witness because God corroborated it with miracles and signs and wonders and the gifts of the Spirit. So they know full well what it is. But so often we are like the disciples in the boat when, the, when they're going across the boat with, uh, and the, sea, uh, um, the storm comes up on the sea and Jesus is sleeping in the boat. And we're, and we're so afraid of the storm. And Jesus is right there. Now, thankfully, they do turn to Christ. So they got that going for them. Jesus, help us. But they do it in fear. Jesus is like, you don't got anything to fear. The the wind and the waves are under my control. Listen, the wind and the waves of your life are under the control of Christ. He sits on the throne. Whatever that is that's, that's shaking your boat right now, God has that under control. It's in his command. So don't look to the wind and the waves. Look to the one who controls the wind and the waves. Look to the one who can anchor your ship down forever. And there's a warning to not drift here. So it's not only discipline to to not drift, it's a warning. There's a warning to not drift. And Hebrews makes this argument from the lesser to the greater. If the old covenant, which was declared by angels, was reliable, and I want you to understand that they would have assumed, they knew that it was totally reliable, it was totally true, it was beyond dispute, And if those who rejected it back then, if the wilderness generation who died because they rejected it, if they got a just punishment for what they did, and that was beyond dispute, then how could the new covenant, this gospel message, which the the writer equates with salvation itself, is it not true as well? And if we neglect it, will we not receive a just punishment for that? This word neglect, it could be used for someone who makes a public commitment, but through apathy, they don't follow through. Listen, listen, you don't wake up one day and go, I think I'll reject Jesus today. But through apathy, we drift. 
Israel had made an external commitment to be God's people, and their lack of faith resulted in apathy to God's word, and they drifted away, and they broke covenant with God, and they died in in the wilderness. Those to whom Hebrews is written were visibly part of the church. They were baptized. They met with the church. They took communion, and so on and so forth. But the risk the risk is not that they wake up one day and just jump to denying Jesus. The risk is they start drifting back to Jewish sacrifices and rituals. They start depending on things other than Christ in their everyday life. And pretty soon, they aren't depending on Christ at all. You may have been a Christian for years. You may have been baptized, just as we saw all these kids baptized. You may have taken communion a hundred times, a thousand times. You may have served in multiple ways in churches. Been to a million small groups. But doing those things with a neglectful demeanor, a neglectful heart, or worse yet, in order to excuse your neglect of faith. Say, oh, well, I've done this and I've done that. So I can, I, I, can, I can neglect trusting God in this area of my life. I'm good. That should be a warning to you, not a reassurance. That's what Hebrews is saying. That should warn you. Something is wrong. So I want to give you today, end with a little bit of an application here, I want to give you today two kinds of Christians who need to be warned. The first are those who pay closer attention to getting more rope than they do to Christ. They're always thinking, what are the things I really shouldn't do? What are the things that I really must do? And how much can I decide for myself? How much can I kind of do what I want. Where are the areas of my life that I can be on the throne instead of Christ being on the throne? It's like the, the high school boy who comes, you know, when I was a youth pastor, a high school boy who comes to me and says, well, how, well, co- pastor, I got a girlfriend. Like, when is it actually sin? Like, how much can I get away with? It's like, ah, oh, you've, already, you've already missed it. You've already missed it. Because you think there's something better for you there than there is in Christ. You think there's something better in what you want to do than there is in what God says to do. You've already missed it. You're already trusting your own wisdom before you're trusting Christ's wisdom. And so those who pay closer attention to how much rope can I get They turn freedom in Christ into freedom from Christ. They turn freedom in Christ into how can I have as much freedom from Christ and still be considered a Christian? It's a completely wrong way of thinking. Their actions reveal a heart that has been letting out so much rope that they don't actually realize that they were never tied. They never tied the rope on the other end. They think they're connected to Christ because they see their rope dangling over there out by the dock, but they're so far away and there's so many waves that they can't actually see it's not anchored. One strong wind of temptation and 
and they're swept away in sin. And we've seen this. They've been allowing their minds to tarry on thoughts of other women or to tarry on computer screens that they linger on particular sites too long. And then one strong breeze of an adulterous woman and they're toast. They've been allowing their minds to grumble and complain and go on about this or about that or about another person. And, and, and in that one time when someone brings up a related comment in a group and suddenly they're gossiping and they're slandering. I mean, I could go on and on with example after example, but you've seen them in your own life and you've seen them in the lives of other people. The second kind of Christian that needs to be warned are those who want to anchor themselves to Jesus and to something else. Those who think, okay, no, I, I know I should be anchored to Jesus, but, but mm, for good measure, maybe I ought to be anchored to these things as well. These are those who think Jesus alone for eternal life, but when it comes to things in this life, their first impulse is something else. When it comes to things in this life, their first impulse is to turn somewhere else than God's word for guidance. They pray for Jesus to deliver them from eternal death and from Satan, but if it is deliverance from desires or anxiety or bitterness or addiction or envy or discontentment or so on, they quickly turn to a dozen other opinions and never seem to turn to God's word. They might mention Jesus, they might even say a prayer on their way to something else, to some other solution. Practically, they seem to trust those things more than they trust Jesus. They say yes to Jesus, but they're concerned with pleasing other people or having their way. And this, we think that we can believe this over here and actually live and speak and act like that over there. But there's a disconnect And at first, at first when this happens, when we start to do this, it's hard to tell because life is smooth and there's enough slack in the rope and it's not a big deal. But when the waves of life come and the boat gets pushed around and one rope is anchor, anchored over here and the, and the gospel rope is anchored over there, when, when the hypothetical in our life becomes actual, right, when the storms of life hit, then we see which rope we hold onto and which one we cut free. Or else, like a boat that is stuck in place, the waves bash against it until it is destroyed. Jesus said, you can only serve one master. Let us be diligent to not only find safe harbor in him, but not to neglect to bring all of our boats into that harbor, even while the, the waters are calm. Let us not neglect so great a salvation. There are Christians, churches, many well-intentioned who think that we ought to take some sort of middle position here, that there is a way to find common ground in which things are sort of neutral and Christianity can kind of coexist with other ideas that are fundamentally and principally opposed to Christ and His Word. And I want you to know that there is no such place Either, either we submit to Christ, he is Lord, he is on the throne, and his angels 
minister to us, or we will inevitably be made a footstool for his feet. Listen, all truth is God's truth, and we can find true things in a lot of different things, but God's word is truth delivered by Christ. It is dad voice. It trumps all else. It is clear, and any neglect of it risks pain and death in this world and eternal damnation in the next. These Hebrews, these Hebrews may have been tempted to bring certain Jewish rituals into their Christianity. Is it so bad to visit the temple in Jerusalem? We used to do it all the time. Didn't, didn't God bring the law and tell us to do that? Is it so bad? But what they don't know that we know now from where we're sitting in history is in just a few short years, Jerusalem is destroyed, millions of Jews are slaughtered by Rome, and the whole temple system is decimated. Listen, it literally is their lives at risk. If they go back to Judaism, if they go back to Jerusalem and live there, they will die. That's what history said happened to those people. And so it is with us today. And so it is with us today. You may not see in the future, but do not neglect so great a salvation. Jesus is king. He's more than a messenger. He's master. Let us look to him. Let's pray.